This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Well, Brian, welcome to the Human Action Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So why don't we, for the benefit of listeners who don't follow every economist on Twitter religiously, because um, that's, that's largely how I know you. I mean, I knew you besides that, but Twitter's how I know most, the most about you. So for those who aren't on Twitter and actually get things done with their day, can you explain just a little bit about your background just so people know who you are? Yeah, so I'm the chief economist at the International Center for Law and Economics. Uh, we are a think tank to, dedicated to promoting law and economics, promoting economic education, things like that. Uh, I have my PhD from the University of Minnesota. By training, I'm an economic theorist, which means I do a lot of math in my spare time. But I also work on competition policy, uh, market dynamics, things like that. You and I know each other because I've been reading blogs for a long time. That's what got me into economics in 2010, 2011. And obviously, you were very active uh, in the blogosphere. And so I I was an, a physicist by uh, for my undergrad, and then I discovered economics. And I, I decided that I was going to change my career direction and studied first did a master's, then did a PhD, and just every day teaching economics. Okay, great. I don't know if you know this, Brian, but yeah, when I was in junior high, I was a big fan of Richard Feynman and thought I was going to become mm-hmm. a theoretical physicist. And then in high school, I got seduced by the economists. And my, my physics yeah, I, teacher I wasn't was mad at so me. so early. Yeah. Okay. I, I had to wait until junior, senior year, uh, coming out of the Great Recession at that time, and, and discovered the Austrians, discovered people like Thomas Sowell, really got me excited about it, and decided to, I, actually, we're going to talk about Alcian. Uh, you know, I was reading his textbook at night. I'm like, okay, I should go back to school. I should do this full time. I shouldn't uh-huh. be working in the private sector. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, maybe before we jump in the Alcian stuff, though, just yeah, like yeah. University of Minnesota is so, can you speak a bit about, cause, cause that's like, like people know about, oh yeah, there's the Chicago school. They might know MIT or something, but the University of Minnesota is also now, you know, has made its name as a certain, like a certain, a certain perspective. Do you want us to speak a little bit about that? Like what, when people think of, oh, what goes on in the Minnesota economics department? Like what are the stereotypical associations? Yeah. So the, the, it's it's dated at this point, but people might have a reference to saltwater versus freshwater. So the, the saltwater macroeconomists would have been the people at MIT or Paul Samuelson's of the world broadly speaking, more in favor of government intervention, more Keynesian type of people. So Keynesian already puts you in the time frame we're talking here. We're talking 70s and 80s, stuff like that. Uh, That's contrasted with the freshwater, Chicago, which most people will know, but also places like Rochester, Carnegie Mellon, and then the University of Minnesota. And so it really got its name as a, in the uh, public perception, it got its name for macroeconomics, uh, very rigorous in terms of the mathematics, uh, founders of Rational Expectations. Robert Lucas passed away just this morning. He'd be another big name, but along with Robert Lucas. Robert Lucas died this morning? Uh, sorry to break the news. You haven't been spending that, enough time on Twitter. Wow, no, because I'm, yeah, I'm actually in Florida coming back from a conference. Yeah. I didn't know, uh, that, but maybe we'll, well, okay, why don't we, go ahead, finish your train of thought, and then yeah, maybe we'll spend a minute on Robert Lucas, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it fits in there. There'll be some this connections. Like MTV uh, News. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, so so the rational expectations, people like Ed Prescott, a very math-heavy 
very formal, wanting to be very precise in your mathematical statements. Uh, that is a thing that still exists today in, at the University of Minnesota, even though you know the big names that we're talking about wrote papers in the 70s and 80s. They stayed on the faculty until a little bit before I went now, there. And can it's, I stop? It's still very much the... Are you... Yeah. I mean, because a, a lot of those names are associated with Chicago. Are you saying like their students went to Minnesota or they also did time at Minnesota? Yeah. Uh, some of them did time at Prescott was at Minnesota for a long time. Okay. Robert Lucas was not, but he was very much in the circles. Uh -huh. Lots of his students went to Minnesota. Okay. Um, I saw him at conferences at Minnesota. Like, you know, th there's very much a, a connection there, even if people didn't have formal appointments. The lines are blurred. This might be two in the weeds, but some people had appointments at the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, which is just down the street. And so, like, someone like Robert Lucas might have been an advisor for a year at the Federal Reserve and been around in the circles. I don't know if he was, but people of that type right, right. were definitely. Okay. And then um, also, most people probably got the reference, but just in case we have some foreign listeners or U.S. listeners who don't know geography, uh, the freshwater meaning because, like, they're near the Great Lakes. Like the yeah, ones, exactly. So near, the, near the Great Lakes, so Minnesota, like Superior, Chicago. As opposed to the, as the oceans, right? So <laughs> the ones to the on oceans, the yeah. east or west coast are yeah. near salt water. So that's the sense yeah. in which it just seems to be this pattern that the interior ones near the lakes happen to be hotbeds of, generally speaking, free market economics, though with different varieties and flavors. And then the salt water, you know, Keynesian analysis. Again, not that it's political, but we all know that there does seem to be some correlations involved. Yeah, there's some correlations involved. And this is particularly around, you know, Chicago School of Economics has has particular implications around free markets and stuff like that. When people say freshwater, it means it has a connection to Chicago for sure. But it's also more explicitly macro, less, less explicitly about free markets. But there is an implication there. I mean... Uh, I, there's a reason that the saltwater people were Keynesian and 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 supported more, uh, you know, government intervention on different things. There, there's a connection, but it's it is useful as a slightly different uh, way of differentiating these these schools of thought. Okay, yeah. Why don't we spend just a minute, uh, also, you know, on Lucas, um, rest in peace, and uh, just so the rational expectations. Yeah, the idea there being that oh, under the Keynesian framework among other possible problems with that approach is the idea that, oh, well, if we just, you know, if they pump up the um, pump in money, inflation goes up and the way that brings down unemployment, there's a sense in which the workers are fooled because, oh yeah, my wages are going up in nominal terms, but they don't realize that actually they are, their real wages are being cut. And so the rational, among other things, rational expectations, they're saying, no, that's not going to work in the long run. You can't like be fooling people. The unions would just figure out yeah. what's going on, stuff like that. Um, what about real business cycle theory? Can you just briefly, is, is that a thing that was said in Minnesota or not necessarily? So, so real business cycle theory is even more Minnesota than, uh, than Robert Lucas. So real business cycle theory is uh, most associated with Kidlin and Prescott. Ed Prescott and Finn Kidlin won the Nobel Prize in 2000 at some point. Uh, and, and the basic question is, Okay, instead of worrying about, you know, aggregate demand shifting around, instead of worrying about, you know, policy messing up, like how much of business cycles can we explain just by trying to put build this very simple model where what happens is productivity goes up and down for some whatever for whatever reason. How much of the business cycle can we explain? And real business cycle then 
starts with that insight and then builds in all sorts of ways, but that there's a real thing. Technology is changing. Technology growth goes up, it goes down. You know, how much of the movement can we kind of make sense of without going into this full-fledged, you know, giant Keynesian model that has a thousand variables that you're trying to estimate and trying to keep track of. Let's, no, it's like one sector model repeated over time. You have capital that's building up. Um, and how can you account for that? Now, there's lots of spinoffs of that and, and different ways it's connected. Uh, Killen and Prescott came up with something called the time to build model, which is very much connected to Austrian ideas of capital of, of you know, it takes there's a shock that happens today. It takes a while for the economy to adjust, especially if capital is a serious thing. Uh, you know, and then so what do you, what happens to the path of, let's say, employment or GDP and stuff like that? Let's build the simplest model possible and then see if we can, like, explain things. And it turned out that they could do a pretty good job. Lots of critiques of real business cycle theory, but they could get more action with more with a simpler model than people maybe thought. Mm -hmm. So let me take a crack at saying some general statements about different schools of thought. And then obviously, Brian, I'll give you a chance if you want to push back on any of it. Or say, good job, Bob. Either way. Um, but so obviously most of our listeners are familiar with the Austrian theory of the business cycle. So what's neat about real business cycle theory, I think it's it's kind of like the mirror, not the mirror, yeah, the mirror image of Keynesianism. And then I, th I think the Austrian theory kind of blends both elements. So again, brushing with broad strokes here, the Keynesians in general, in terms of talking about recessions in modern market economies, you know, since the start of the 20th century, let's say, blame oh it's a shortfall of demand right so it's a call it a, a a monetary thing that in terms of like oh it's a total spending is not high enough for whatever reason and it's not enough to provide full employment so that's why the central bank has to cut interest rates and then oh if it gets down to zero percent and you're in the so-called liquidity trap and if it's still if, if total private spending isn't enough then the government has to come and run a big fiscal deficit to fill the gap okay so, but so that's kind of like a monetary or a, you know a demand-driven you know aggregate. It's about spending. It's about money. You know, nominal things. Whereas the reason they call it real business cycle theory or RBC is they're not looking at spending patterns and things like that or how much money's going around or what's or they're looking at real factors. And they, my understanding is like in the when they first launched this, they could come up yeah with a a simple model in the sense that there's not too many moving parts, but the math does get complicated to like complete the model. And like they could say, oh, if we look, if we model the U.S. economy as a as an agent who has a preference for leisure, but also likes you know the things that labor can yield, but the productivity varies depending on external conditions. Well, what's a rational person going to do? And I've seen analogies like to an Uber driver. If you know you're an Uber driver and you you know you got to sleep sometimes, you don't want to be work you know, on the clock all the time. You got to take breaks. And so when are you going to be like behind the wheel looking to get rides when it's most productive? So like if, if a lot of flights are going to land at a certain time of day, you're going to be at the airport ready. If it's, you know, New Year's Eve or something, you're going to be working all night. But other times, like at two o'clock in the morning on a weekday when there's no holiday, you're not going to be hanging outside the airport in your Uber waiting for a ride because you just know there's no business for me. So with that insight, the idea is, oh, when your labor is most productive, that's when you're going to work. And when it's not so productive, that's when you're not going to work and you're going to, you know, enjoy leisure instead. So they modeled the entire economy is like an agent rationally choosing like that. And so when the OPEC oil shock happens in the 70s, energy is more expensive. That means, you know, workers and other Less factors productive. aren't as productive. So the, the economy would rationally work less yeah. 
and that shows up, yeah. you know, as high unemployment. But you know, and so the idea is not it's to say, oh no, this is a rational response to these shocks that happen. It's not the economy is suddenly broken during a recession. And then yeah, that, have, that's a big, big part of it. The mm-hmm. uh, it's not that's broken. Like these are one thing is trying to fit everything in the same story, the same situation. In good times and bad times, these are the same people acting, same things making decisions, and ultimately, yeah, real things like being able to produce because you have oil matters. Where a lot of other schools, Austrians at times, or the monetarists, the Keynesians, think about this disconnect because money causes complications that sometimes throw off investment. We can spin it all sorts of ways. Uh, but there's like, let's not worry about what money's doing. Let's not worry about what interest rate is doing. Let's just, let's, you know, boil it down to the simplest in terms of moving parts. The math, as you said, can be a little bit more complicated. But in terms of moving parts, no, it's just productivity is moving up and down. And what can we, mm-hmm. what can we trace out with that? Okay, yeah. And then the other virtue in those world, like everybody had rational expectations and stuff in the world of those models, right? So there was no fooling with the work. No, it was no, given that these shocks occurred to work less is the rational optimizing response. And that's what, yeah, you, and so, yeah. so, so in all of these models, you have to find a way to deal with expectations because you're not going to stay home uh, to take your Uber example. You're not going to stay home. If every day is going to be low employment, there's, there's a, intertemporal substitution you're going to do there. Well, how much do you think you're going to work tomorrow night? How much do you think you're going to work uh, next week? Okay, you have to have some idea of what those expectations are um, in order to just like think through the problem. Forget getting formal or anything like mm-hmm. that. You need to take a stance. When I say I'm deciding to work today v- instead of working tomorrow, I'm implicitly saying that I have some expectations about tomorrow. So how do we close that loop in the model? Well, let's just assume that the agents in the model know exactly uh, the same thing that the the person designing the model would would know. So you don't have anyone outside the model, no planner who can manipulate things and and know things that are happening that the agents don't actually know. And so you you kind of constrain yourself. One of Lucas's great quotes, which I love, is you know beware of a theorist bearing free parameters. You mm-hmm. you need to constrain what you're doing at the model. Um, so that you don't just spin any story you want. And one way to constrain that is rational expectations. Okay, great. Um, and then, yeah, we don't need to dwell on this anymore, but just to finish the train of thought, I was going to say that, so when you, it's nice to study like how much the real, so my understanding is empirically the RBC theorists, they could take like the time series of estimates of labor productivity and, you know, total factor productivity, whatever, and kind of match at least certain business cycle activities to like, oh, we can look at the U.S. economy as if it's one agent with these, you know, preferences for leisure and blah, 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 responding rationally to the shocks. And it's, it's internally consistent. You know, there's no crazy part of the story. Um, you know, my, I guess the, the criticism is people say, oh, well, okay, in that view, like they'll, they'll disparage it and say, oh, so in their opinion, the 1930s, it wasn't the Great Depression. It was the Great Vacation. Ha ha. Like you're like that's the Keynesians mocking them and say it it's kind of goofy. You're explaining the massive unemployment in the '30s is all the workers just rationally deciding. Well, I'm going to spend some time home with my family now because the wheat harvest is so low because of the Dust Bowl or whatever. And yeah, yeah. that no people were desperate for work. Come on, look at the labor markets are broken. Give me a break. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the takeaways that I think is important is anytime that you think you have a gotcha of any of these schools of thought. 
it's probably not the gotcha that you think it is because serious people, whether they're whether they're saltwater, freshwater, Austrian, serious people have thought about these things and have a response. And so I, the 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 simplest response or the simplest, uh, I think, pedagogical benefit of the RBC model is like this is just a benchmark to c- compare everything. Mm-hmm. We're gonna we want to build this into everything. It's gonna get us maybe a quarter of the way there in terms of explaining the variation, the movements in labor productivity. And then we want to build up from that and build more stuff. But let's at least start with a s- internally consistent model and, and, and have this kind of building block. And then we can add on, you know, uh, sticky prices somehow or, or other problems that we think, well, then, well, that actually captures more of the, the recession, more of the boom, whatever it is. And so it's really about from my perspective, I'm not a I'm not a real business cycle theorist. I don't do business cycle research, but from my perspective, it's really about having that that benchmark model in the same way that supply and demand to go for something that I use a bunch is a benchmark model. You know, the price is doing all the work in supply and demand. Price goes up, quantity demand it goes down, so on and so forth. Now there's more to life than just prices, but that how much of the story of how markets work can we explain? just thinking about prices moving around. And I think we can explain a lot. That doesn't mean that I think everything in the world is about prices going up and down. Advertising plays a role, you know, quality improvements play a role, but let's, let's at least build off of a a shared foundation. And that's what's happened over the last 40 years within macroeconomics is everyone took the real business cycle model and then they put on whatever pieces that they thought were interesting, sticky prices, um, time to build considerations, whatever it is. Okay, great. So speaking of prices, why don't we now move on to what was going to be the official topic <laughs> is uh, I saw Brian. What was the re- reason? Was it the 10th anniversary of his death? Is that why you all of a sudden started talking about El- we, we, He's talking here to talk about I'm, I'm, Armin Alshian. I'm always talking about Armin Alshian. Okay. And I think I was bored one day and I saw an old video where, or maybe... I stumbled across an old video where Elshin is interviewing Hayek, and it made me want to write a thread that is now deleted because I delete my old tweets. Uh, uh, write a thread on on Elshin because most people who don't know who he is, even most economists, and I have a newsletter, Economic Forces, at Substack, uh, that is very much in the spirit of of what Armin Elshin taught us. Okay, great. So, would you? The reason I'm saying the price thing is that it, is it right to to say? price theory in the UCLA tradition? Like, is that a, a, a way people talk? I think so. Okay. That's the way I talk. Okay. I, I don't yeah. know. If, I don't know how much is Well, are you up. a person? That's what we would need to really nail that. <laughs> yes. I, so there is at least at least two, me and my co-author, Josh okay. Hendrickson. Okay. So now we got a plural. Uh, Good. So, yeah. And, and the reason I say it is because I actually never learned that formally, right? So I went to Hillsdale College where it was an Austrian tradition and then NYU, you know, for the PhD, again, Austrian. Well, uh, New Keynesian in terms yeah. of the formal coursework, and then yeah, the Austrian in terms of the you know outside reading that I did there, and so I actually no one ever who was a like a from UCLA or learned in that tradition was ever my direct teacher because even like Rizzo and guys like that at NYU were Chicago guys they weren't mm-hmm. used so I know but I know like and you read stories about this stuff and I looked it up on Wikipedia like apparently James Buchanan said that Elshian was the best blackboard economist of all time or something like that. Like meaning yeah. that, you know, the, the idea being that, oh, in terms of like, like, or if you read like some of the exams that they would give their students, like it's like, whoa, this wasn't, you know, a math question. Like 
here's you know calculate how many barrels of oil are going to get across the way like it was really getting you to think through the logic of how do prices work and you know incentives and yeah. things like that so anyway i <laughs> let me stop and turn over to you for just you know if you want to give a general preface before we dive into your your thread here going through some of his work but do you want to just speak a little bit about alcian's role in the profession yeah so so he's an underappreciated Overall, because he's not that well known, but the people who had him as a professor or interacted with him in other places swore by him as as this genius. And and when Buchanan says that he's the the, you know, the best blackboard economist, I think it's just the ability to think through using simple models on the board any problem that you put towards him. You know, UCLA econometrics is you ask Elchin, do these numbers look right? And he says yes or no. Like that's the he just knows this stuff is the the people who knew him just swore by everything he said on that on that front. But he's relatively obscure in the sense that he didn't write that much uh compared to some other big names. He um wasn't mathematical. This was before, you know, his first major article is nineteen fifty, his last major article is maybe 78 maybe you could say there's an 85 article so that's the window it's kind of in this transition uh where you know math is taking over but he was of the older tradition that didn't use a ton of math he used some he was a statistician like milton friedman but he but he wasn't the kind of heavy math that you then saw in the 60s and 70s and so he's a little bit out of uh out of place with the rest of the profession it's also just hard he his textbook is hard he has a textbook with bill allen uh, it's went through a few editions. The current version from Liberty Fund is called uh, University Economics. Universal. The original one was University Universal okay. Economics, and it's supposed to be this principal textbook. But it's it's hard questions. It's not here's a curve. Literally read off the graph, which is what a, most principles and micro courses are now. This is like, you know, uh, big questions about like if there's a if there's a uh, you know. Uh, price control in this market, what happens to the other market, what happens to the the waiting in line if this happens. It's just very open-ended types of questions, which were famous as part of the price theory tradition, both at the UCLA version and the Chicago version. So Milton Friedman uh, has a, a collected lecture notes that are price theory of provisional text or something like that. Price theory term is also connected to Chicago as well. Let me just to give it um, an example of a th- so you're right so Steve, I'm thinking of Steve Landsberg. Um, I Great was just example. reading his his blog recently. So I believe he was he's Chicago mm-hmm. in the price. So again, you know, technically it's weird that I'm but just to give people an idea of there is this thing of the price theory tradition like it both at Chicago and UCLA that if you just had an, if you just read Austrians you wouldn't see this kind of stuff. And so I just want to give an example of the kind of thing we mean because the the context here, Brian is Steve recently gave his exam. I forget what level it was to chat GPT four to see how it did. And, and it, he failed it miserably, but in fairness, I don't know if I would have passed this test <laughs> given how, you know, like Steve looks, he wants a specific answer. If you don't say it, Oh my God, how did you not even know that? You know? So, <laughs> so anyway, yeah. just so the folks at home get an idea. The question was something like the government is handing out, or not, no, the government's selling something that people value at um, $5. And and then it's also, you know, and, and people are lining up to get the thing, you know, if they pay for it. And then um, to try to, you know, make it more enjoyable or something for them, the government also um, 
starts making cups of coffee and handing them out for free to the people in line, um, you know, so that they don't just got to stand there. They can be drinking coffee while they're waiting. And the coffee costs $2 a cup to make, but the people in line actually only value each cup at a dollar. And then what's the total social cost of the government adding this coffee program to the, you know, to the thing. And so, you know, your natural inclination is to think it's either two or one and you're not, you know, like, is it a, is it a gross cost? Is it a net? And, you know, and you think that's the thing, but no, what Steve wanted for the answer. And that's what the chat GPT did. You know, I think it said, you know, one times how many t- cups of coffee there were, that's the, the net cost or something, social cost of this coffee program. And Steve is no, it totally missed the fact that given now that the government is handing out free cups of coffee, it makes it more enjoyable to wait in the line so more people will get in the line, making the line longer, and that kind of fritters away whatever the benefit was of that cup of coffee, you know, like the subjective, you know what I mean? So in other words, it, the line grows now until the point at which the marginal guy getting at the end of the line is just indifferent between getting in line or not. So the, So by adding the coffee it didn't help anybody at all, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever, you know, so that, that's, that's the idea. I won't dwell on that, but I'm just saying that's the kind of stuff, like you wouldn't see something like that in Rothbard or anything. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the way I characterize it. It's thinking across markets, or in this case, it's, it's you have your initial thing, which is, okay, um, people value the coffee, but then there's a secondary effect, this unseen almost, if you're not paying attention, of wait, the line gets longer and you want to trace these things out. And it's very much about, uh, Land, Landsberg's a great example. He used a uh, Chicago PhD, but uh, math, and but he took the Chicago price theory course uh, from uh, Donald McCloskey, then Deirdre now, um, and and he is very he's probably the, the best example of this like in popular writing. If you ha- if people haven't read his Armchair Economist, it's a great one. Uh, he's got a recent one that has a great explanation of Hayek and the uh, knowledge problem. I forget what that's called. Uh, but yeah, just a great communicator on these fronts. Okay, so uh, could, uh, do you know of any other examples like that, or is that you know what I mean? Like to give an example, people like a brain teaser or whatever. Yeah, because again, it's not. So just, a lot of them are. Go ahead. A lot of them are structured as brain teasers, and and Landsberg really pushes the brain teaser. I think it's outsmarting economists is another right, right. book because he wants one. But Elton would ask questions like, "This is one I got from Walter Williams." You know, uh, uh, you you build a. a New York City builds a bridge. It ends up lasting for 100 years. Like, why do you build a bridge? Why does anyone today build a bridge when, when the uh, benefits for, don't come in for another 100 years? And you start thinking through the, the possible answers. You know, one possible answer would be like, well, there's just no other way to do that. And I guess apparently, according to Alshin, that that's not true. You can, you can actually make very short-term bridges. People do it in war all the time. Um, and so you you know you just okay. you get all these answers. And right. So kinda, it'd be cheaper. <laughs> it'd be cost, cheaper today if we made it, it, and it's not going to last more than you know ten weeks or something. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. But we never see that. You know, we mm-hmm. see pretty sturdy bridges, at least in in the United States and stuff. And so, you know, what are what are all the possible rationales? It turns out generally there's like never an answer to Alison's questions. It's just like open ended to think through. Mm-hmm. You know, what counts as an explanation, but but. Uh, that's one. I don't have. I should. I should have a better example off the top of my head because I, I've gone through uh, universal economics many times, and there there are a lot of good ones in there, but I can't think of them. Okay. I mean, presumably part of the explanation. It, it's hard if it's a government contracts and stuff, and then that mess, you could say, oh, because they're shoveling money to the unions, and they can, you know. But um, 
I guess if it's a private thing, like why would Disney World build a bridge that lasts 30 years, you know, with and, the current and I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know all the ones that he, that he knocked down in class that he thought mm-hmm. weren't acceptable. Uh, and that maybe that's part of it. Right. Yeah. So it's presumably there. The answer is something like, well, because that's still. Even if you're on your deathbed as a shareholder, you want to maximize the value of the shares and people can look ahead and know that, oh, this is the revenue coming in next year because this bridge is in place, blah, blah, blah. And so, yeah, uh, I, I assume part of the answer was that was the same reason that firms yeah, do, do this, you know, build for the future beyond their deathbed. I mean, I know one example that isn't just from him. A lot of people talk about is uh, planting trees that don't that don't come to full growth for 100 years. Well, you know, for for outsiders or people who don't know economics, that may be a little bit strange. Why would you do that? But you know, you you get the value of a of a tree that's going to be, you know, full height in in eighty years is worth something, in forty years is worth something, and so that those stick kind of standard, present discounted value type of calculations that make your firm valuable today. Uh, that 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 force is very strong in a lot of different situations. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Most people who don't know economics think that private owners have a incentive to just clear cut forests. And they look at like in yeah. Brazil's that stuff happening and see that's laissez faire. Like, no, actually that's the government, you know, giving logging rights to private companies, private timber, you know, and things, mm-hmm. foresters have the incentive to maintain their crop. Just like we don't run out of tomatoes because all the farmers foolishly, you know, <laughs> just so, or we don't kill, kill all the cattle. Oh no, we didn't see, we didn't keep us back enough cattle. We just slaughtered it all because meat prices, you know, beef prices were so high. Shoot. There's no more cattle. They all died. Now we're, you know, we can't yeah. ever enjoy beef again. I, I think this is one of the areas where Elshin was really um, consistent and really pushed forward our thinking of it is, is that we need to turn everything into like a present value calculation and that there's some capital that is valuable to you today. You know, why, why, do, you, uh, why do you run advertisements today? Well, because running advertisements today raises brand awareness. Well, that turns into the value of your firm today if you would try to sell it would be higher after you've ran the ads if they're you know if assuming that you make a good decision and run ads that are beneficial right why do you why do you train your workers today same thing and kind of everywhere we look all of these things for a private firm get rolled into the capital value or just the value of the firm and everything in terms of costs in terms of uh, profits any of these things need to be thought of in that term of what is your value today if you want to sell it? Um, and, and what are the things that increase that value over time? Great, great. Okay, so let me, I'm just going through your th- post now here. I want to make sure you're getting some of the meat of this. So you start out, you say, in 1984, Hayek was asked who his favorite economist was. He named two. I like that. It's a good economist answer that when somebody asks you a question, you know, just give them a straight, you know, like, well, there could be this guy on the one hand, but on the other hand, maybe it's this guy. And so he named Stigler. George Stigler was one of them, but the other one was Armin Alshian. Apparently, unless Brian's lying to us, um, and so then it's uh, in a re- I think that's in a reason interview. I did I I did check that before I tweeted it. <laughs> well, that's more than I would do. So there you go. Best you could, all I want is plausible deniability. But I sourced this claim <laughs> to the British government. Um, okay, so and then you know Brian's saying how you know a lot of people don't know Elshin's name, but that's a shame. And, and so in this series of t- tweets, he's going to go over some of his major works. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you start out production information costs and economic organization with Harold Demsetz. So Harold Demsetz himself is a giant in these areas, right? Yeah, yeah. So those are the 
if you've heard of UCLA economics or you've heard of property right economics, Elshin and Demsets are two of the, the big names. And this particular paper, and maybe actually the only – no, they have, they have another paper together. But this is the one that people often know them for is this, this paper on basically the theory of the firm. Why do firms exist? And it was cited as one of the 20 most influential papers from the American Economic Review, the, the big journal in the, of the American Economic Association – 20 best papers of their first 100 years. Other ones that people be aware of is the use of knowledge in society is in that list. Um, Ken Arrow has a paper on, on, on health economics. Big big papers, all mm-hmm. the 20 of them. And this one by Elshin and Demsets is kind of key. Okay, so before you give us it, in case people are like, what do you mean why do firms exist? Because we want products and services. What, are you talk- what, what does that question mean compared to what? Like, what would, what would yeah. it mean if firms didn't exist? We don't mean we'd all be dead. What is... Yeah, we could just bilaterally contract maybe and just buy things on, on the market, you know, little by little, go to a spot market, buy an Apple, go to the market, buy buy a computer, that sort of transaction. Why doesn't that just happen for everything? Kind of this this uh, contractor model, why isn't that just pushed to the extreme of the, you no, know, you hire me for an hour today, four hours tomorrow, you hire me for this task, for that task. That's not what we see. We don't see people going to, a, you know, a, 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 an active market every second people incorporate or pe- that's a bad word for it. people join together into firms and so why do they exist um coase had something that was sort of an answer but not really an answer in his theory of the firm well the reason we exist is because it's too costly for us to uh to trade that often and so instead of going and and, and you know hiring a contractor every hour we create a firm i sign you for a long-term contract there's ways to fire you. There's ways for you to leave. But we kind of we create some stability that lowers transactions costs. Um, that that answer is obviously true, but it's not clear exactly what it means. I mean, why do you do something? Because it's the lowest cost option. Why did you buy? Why did you drive instead of take the train? Well, it's the lowest cost option. Well, again, that has to be true, but it's not really an answer. And so, so Elshin and Demsets dig into can, it. Can I stop you, Brian? Yeah. I, again, I wanted to make sure everybody. Yeah gets what what the puzzles we're trying to solve because to them it might be so obvious that instead of like workers all going to a factory to make cars let's say and it's this it's a company and there were shareholders that got together they put their money into this corporation it then went and hired a bunch of workers with long-term contracts like brian saying it's not slavery the workers can leave the employers can lay them off but that's a different model from like i know some guys who are in roofing that the guy just gets into his truck. He has a bunch of cash in his wallet. He, you know, he's got he buys the shingles and stuff at, at uh, Home Depot, mm-hmm. the nails, whatever. Mm-hmm. Drives up, and there's an area where it's known that certain workers who may not be legally supposing to do this, but can just drive up and say, "Hey, hey, hey, I need four of you." You know how much I'm, and, and he makes deals with them that day to go do, you know, knock out, putting, you know, roof in somebody's yeah. place. And then that's it. And there's no long-term contract. It's like he's literally hiring people for the day. And he goes to Home yep. Depot and buys the stuff that he'll use for that job. It's not like he has long-term contracts and then he's got a bunch of full-time employees and all that kind of stuff. So why isn't every business enterprise or, you know, how come all work or most of it doesn't happen that way? Why instead are there people, you know, workers that work for a company? The model is, oh, we pay you for a year and this is how much you but what am I going to do? Well, you have an idea of what you're going to do, but basically you go to work and your boss tells you, your manager tells you, yeah. this is what you're doing this week. Yeah. 
And and that's a and that's part of Coase is really obsessed with is this idea that your boss tells you. Yes, you have the, you have the option to leave, but at the end of the day, someone up up the hierarchy. There is a hierarchy in the way that there's not uh, uh, with with you know just buying and selling on on a spot market. There's a hierarchy, but you accept the hierarchy and. You know, they tell you to, to do that, you do it. They tell you to clean the bathrooms, you do that. You know, um, that's the way that most most uh, production is, is organized in a modern society. You know, what are what are the reasons? It's just it's easier. I mean, it's easier to to um, we'll get to Elshin Dempsey in a second. It's just easier to not have to go searching for trading partners every day. It's easier to not have to go work, you know, search for workers every day. No, that that person's going to show up. No matter what, they may not like it today. They may like it tomorrow. Okay, ups and downs. We're going to go through that, and we're going to have this kind of long-term relationship. Um, so is that, that's, that's close. I mean, because I know one way of saying close is answer yeah. is it lowers transaction costs, and you're saying that's a bit, you know, um, vacuous. Tautological. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that's Coase's answer is to say the boundaries. Of, maybe that's another way, not to say why do firms exist, but why do the boundaries of the firm exist? How come the firm has some stuff internal? But other stuff, it does, you know, might hire some independent. Maybe the, the guys that cut the lawn, it is just mm-hmm. a local business that they do just have a contract with. You know, it's not that they yeah. hire those guys as the employees of the firm. And then today, go cut the lawn. No, it's like a separate one-off contract. So the boundaries of that, Coast says, transaction costs. That's a, but then you're saying, Brian, okay, but that's kind of like if we say, hey, how, how come humans have lungs the way they are? And that people say, oh, because of, um, you know, that just gave you a survival of the fittest, period. <laughs> yeah. You know, without giving more details about the story, it's kind of like a tautology in biology at this point. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It, it, uh, so what yeah, do, that, the more interesting question is, uh, is how wide it is, you know, and mm-hmm. sometimes you sometimes you ha- have contractors, sometimes they're employees, employees have different legal rights, employee relationships are different. Now, Elgin and, and Demsets, they, 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 I think... Um, have two interesting points. One is they really stress that this really push home the gains from trade idea is that working together in this structure of the firm allows us to just do more than we could in contracting. Okay. That we're just more productive for whatever reason when Mm -hmm. we come and we, we, we form a a firm. The other is uh, that, that once you have multiple people working on a team, you have this problem of monitoring because it's not true that everyone is just going to, you know, we all know from, from high school projects and from, from teamwork in general, once you get a bunch of people together, um, some people want to slack off, some people have different goals in mind and stuff like that. Well, if team production is so important, and that's one of the things that comes to a firm, or one of the things that makes a firm so valuable, well, how do you make sure that uh, that there's how do you make sure that people aren't slacking off too much? We all slack off, you know, more any group project. We don't work as hard as our teammates wish we had. OK, well, it turns out that what we tend to see is is we delegate to a boss, to a manager, to someone else in the group who's kind of going to keep us all in line. And one of the things that uh, uh, that the firm does is it creates this hierarchy where the, the manager or the owner uh, uh, has the or it, it is tasked one of their jobs is to make sure everyone else is working doing their job job dil- diligently. Now, how do you align incentives a little bit more there? Well, if they're doing a really good job, 
the manager or the owner, actually, better example, the owner gets to make profits. They get to keep the residual. So, so the person that we task with monitoring us, make sure we're working hard, is also the person that gets you know, the extras when we do really well together. And so you align incentives that way, that the person who is going to uh, be looking at us closely also is going to get rewarded for that. And so that's the person we call the, the owner or the residual claimant. And we could get into more about risk and things like that, but the general idea is that okay. you, you want to align the monitoring with the with right. the with the profits. Okay, so great. So is one element? I, I know there's a lot of nuances, but is is the first approximation? Is it right to say, oh, why do firms exist, or why do they have the boundaries, and how come some workers are full time employees and other ones are? Coase says it's to lower costs, whereas Demsets and Alshian say it's to boost productivity. That could be part of it, or or they're a little more explicit about what the costs are, and they're really thinking about monitoring okay. people who are working hard or not working hard. Okay, but but yeah, yeah I like that uh, how you bring them inside, and then maybe they're hmm. you know the gain or the the productivity goes up if they specialize within the firm, whereas if you were doing yeah. one off, that wouldn't necessarily. And even too, like as the team gets to, know, I mean, you can think of it literally as a team, like a sports team. Yeah, like obviously, if you just every day, you know, the manager of the club went out and hired, you know, looked at the, you know, went to the local courts and picked the best point guard and the best center and the forward, and they went and played. Those guys, if they were playing with each other for the first time in that game, wouldn't be as good as a team that practices together. And so, you know, that's a silly example, but that's true in general. That working together with people, you kind of learn from each other and get yeah. used to each other. There's a lot of the stress on learning by doing that. This is, goes back to, to Adam Smith and the pin factory that, you know, you do a job over and over and over again. You get better at it over time. But the same thing is true for teamwork. You know, working together more and more, you're going to be more productive than you ever would be, uh, it, you know, that we just, yes, we happen to work together a few days in a row, but this lack of certainty of, or lack of, you know, confidence in what the future is going to hold, we're not going to invest as much in this relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead. Just I'm looking at the clock yep. here. I want to. I don't want to rush. I know some of these later ones are very interesting as well. So I'm jumping ahead, Brian. If you have it in your to your number three, so the paper is uncertainty evolution in economic theory, and um, that was just all she and by himself, right? I don't think he had any yep. co-authors on that one. So you, I'll read your your prompts here. You say, do firms maximize profits? That's not a well posed question with uncertainty. In fact, in many ways, it doesn't matter what people try to do. The profit system selects for firms that make positive profits. So can you explain both that? Why, if there's uncertainty, does it not even make sense to say, do firms maximize profits? What do you mean? Yeah, so so in the late 40s, there was this debate within economics, within management. Like, we assume in our models that, that what firms are trying to do is make as much profit as possible. Um, and is this what managers or, or residual claimants owners actually do? Do they try to make as much profit? No, they want to, you know, they want an easy life. They want something else. Okay, so there's two parts to the argument. The first is that if you are going to, uh, in a world with uncertainty, there's not an agreed upon meaning for maximizing profits. Okay, does it maximize? What is what is a better choice? A, a coin flip that gives you. Uh, if it comes up heads, it gives you $100, or if it comes up tails, it gives you $0, that coin flip, versus another guaranteed $45, which maximizes profit. Well, we can build in assumptions about how people weigh off the risk and whatnot, but, mm-hmm. there, but that's, a, that's a different question. There's no 
way to compare them in general. Some people who are more risk averse will take the forty-five dollars. Some people who are more risk loving will take the you know the, the coin flip of a hundred versus zero. And so let me just stop we, you, Brian. So, yeah, yeah, I know most people get that, but because the expected value in terms of the mathematical expectation of the coin flip one is fifty dollars, right? It's yeah. half the time you're going to get a hundred, half the time you get zero. So you might be tempted to say, oh, that's the profit of those two choices. That's the profit maximize. But you could exaggerate it. Oh, really? So what if yeah. the business, you know, they could do this really edgy advertising campaign that's got a 1% chance of tripling their market share, but a 99% chance of just offending everybody and they go broke. What's profit? Yeah. If, if the business doesn't choose to do that, is that because it's, you know, oh, they don't, I guess they don't want as much money as possible. Well, no, maybe it's because, you know, there's their risk tolerances of certain patterns. Yeah. And so this paper is 1950, and so within economics since 1950, there's been a lot of work to make that, you know, to 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 work through exactly different situations where you'd expect people to pick one versus the other. Um, so I don't find that part of the article as interesting in 2023, just because we we work with expected value, we have ways of uh, of kind of incorporating risk a little bit. I think the so uncertainty is the first word in the title. Evolution is the second. And the interesting argument is this, well, we don't need to spend that much time thinking about what people are actually wanting to do. The outcomes may be very different than they intend. In particular, uh, you know, if firms are going out of business, regular, you know, if, if the profit if the profit and loss mechanism is driving firms out of business, the firms we're left with will look very different than the pool we started with. And so we could have a selection on profit, even if people are, you know, wanting to have fun at their job. They're not trying to make profit. At the end of the day, you have to cover your bills. If you can't cover your bills, you're going to go out of business. You're going to select for the firms that do a better job, at least making positive profits. They may mm-hmm. not be maximizing, mm-hmm. but they get, they have to be consistently year in and year out making positive profits if they're going to stay in business. And so we have this break between intentions of the owners, managers, and what we observe in the the surviving firms. And so that's the evolution argument. All right. What about the one about the uh, the fun one here? So there's so someone wrote an article. Was this Joseph Newhard wrote an article called The Stock Market Speaks, How Dr. Alshian Learned to Build the Bomb. So go ahead and tell us the uh, the story behind that. So this is, this is not about a, a paper that he published. It was about a, a study he did for the Rand Corporation. So he was at UCLA. Rand Corporation was, was nearby, and so he was at Rand for a while. Now, it was the early 1950s. Uh, you can look at the, the paper uh, for the exact details. I may mess up some of them. It was early 1950s. Everyone knew that they're trying to develop uh, the H-bomb. Okay, They're trying to improve on, on atomic bombs, the the, the the Defense Department or whoever it was at that point, the War Department, okay? And Elshin asked, okay, what is it going to be made of? Do we know? Is there anything out there? And so he started to dig around in his, in his free time at, at Rand, and he said, okay, well, there's about six materials in which it could possibly be made from. And so he learned, you know, he talked to the scientists, he figured out what the six materials could be. This is all classified. We know we're trying to build an H-bomb. The government's trying to build an H-bomb. No one knows what's going on. It's the highest level of security, okay? Um, Elshin, okay, figures out there's a few materials. He figures out that there's six, seven companies uh, that ha- that manufacture these different materials, and he and he collects all this stuff. Well, then he decides to look at what's happened to these 
uh, companies over time, what's happening to their stock market valuation. And all the companies that manufactured um, uh, uh, materials that could have been vital for the construction of the H-bomb, for the, fu the fusion material, um, all of them are, are flat across uh, 52, 53, into 54, okay? But one of the companies, at the beginning of March 1954, stock market price rose from like $3 to $15, like almost overnight, okay? We now have the declassified information. The company was the one that, that produced the material for Castle Bravo, which was a nuclear test that was successful. So the kind of cool insight is one is that markets have this kind of efficiency property that they incorporate top secret information plays out in market prices almost in real time. And so it was this cool event study that he did just based on public records uh, that were available uh, at, at Rand, and he and he found this. His his supervisor did not like that. Uh, he he found out what the atomic bomb was made out of. This is an economist. He doesn't have top, you know, mm -hmm. top secret clearing. Uh, he had to destroy the destroy the report. Uh, but this was seen. This was seen now as kind of the first event study in in, in finance of looking at this big event in the real world and what happens to stock prices. And so now after declassification that uh, Newhart was able to go back and reconstruct it because we know the companies that were bidding, we know what materials were used in those original tests. And so it's a really cool illustration, one of how clever he was as an empirical mm -hmm. economist. Like, you know, yeah, once it's explained to you, it's kind of, it kind of makes sense. Oh, it's something shows up in stock prices. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, and, and his kind of faith in 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 markets to to reveal information and to tell us what's going on about the world. So I I think it's a it's a cool story. Um, the uh, the details you can you can look at the paper. There's a working paper online too somewhere. Uh, but the, it's it's really showing off Elshin at his his most. Uh, Do you bad. know? And, and I apologize if you, if you don't know the detail. But if he had to throw it out, like what happened? Did he later? Tell the story, like with just the like yeah. Verbally so so without... he later he 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 told the story at least in three spots, mm -hmm. uh, different interviews in the introduction of one of his collected volumes. I forget if it's the completed works or a different one. He relays it. Doesn't go into the details that that the um, that the academic paper goes into because I, I don't think it was declassified by that point. But he, you know, fifty years later, he he was confident he wasn't going to get thrown in jail for. For breaking to saying that he discovered what it was because he didn't actually even I think say in the interviews at all what it was he just yeah I knew it just to make sure people are getting the so what what was the actual mechanism were there people that should not have been trading on that that were or was it authorized and they just thought oh well, I can go buy this stock because who's who's gonna be looking at the stock market to figure out what we're doing to build a bomb we we don't we don't know uh, uh, exactly who was making those trades happen to, to move it. The, the simplest story is that there were insiders, people who knew what the material was. They knew that the Castle Bravo test was successful, mm -hmm. and they went and bought stocks from the company that was going to be able to, to, to sell the material that would then be used in the future bombs. Because right. once or, you had a successful bomb, now you're going to... Right. Or even to hide their tracks better and maybe to... Maybe like some, some people that knew contacted others and said, I can't tell you why, but trust me, yeah. you want to get into this stock. And, you know, it could, five could years from now, I'll tell, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, you'll yeah. thank could, me later. It could, be, 
It could be, uh, you know, someone at, at the company. I, f- I forget the company. You know, they got a slightly bigger order than normal. Mm-hmm. They had a, you know, a sneaking suspicion that maybe something was successful. They bought it. It could be passed on. All sorts of pseudo insider trading type of things uh, that that would have revealed it. Because again, you have you have the most highly classified information that's showing up. You know, and we can see it in retrospect showing up in public data. Yeah, so and I like that because you're right. Like everybody knows, or everyone in economics, oh yeah, incentives matter, and stock prices. You know, new and for inside information would tend to be revealed in stock price movements. Blah blah blah. But then to say, but empirically, how big of an impact does that force have? Is it washed out by noise or something? That's not a priori obvious. Um, Just like give a totally different example, but to show like this is how certain economists think. When there was the, um, I don't know if you remember this, Brian, but it, it was in the George W. Bush years. They were haggling over the uh, inheritance tax, or they call it the, yeah, the, yeah, you know, yeah. the opponents call it death tax, and it expired. And they were still haggling. Now, some people say it was on purpose because they, then so there was a one year period where if, you're, if you died, your estate would not be subject to any tax, you know, and you could give it to your heirs and stuff or your foundations where you're giving it to. And then, and then but it was kind of coming force. You know, they, they had it reinstated. And so these economists looked at to see, did that, you know, the fact that there was this brief period where if you happen to die in this window, your a fortune doesn't get taxed, were more people dying there? Like, did it seem like the deaths on either side of that got pulled into the zone? And it, it did empirically. And then the question was just like, you know, some guy in his deathbed, he knows if I could just hold on, do my kids, you know, save 200 grand? Or did they fake the death certificate? You know what I mean? Like, did the guy just still die whenever? But then because there was so much a financial incentive, did the doctors fudge the numbers because the kids are there like, you know, this could really make a difference to us. Can you you know, work with us on that date of, you know, time of death or whatever? So, but not even that's the kind of thing economists would then go look at. And apparently, yep, it was a statistically significant result that it looked like the change in the tax code affected when people died. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, a paper by Wojtek Kapcha and Joel Slenrod. Uh, yeah, that's that's a classic example because you think of people don't respond. Uh, you know, of course the economy, the non-economists would say, of course people can't change when they're going to die. Well, the economists, whoa, 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 let's let's see if that's true. Right. And they they found this example both on the. I think if my memory's right, both on the front end because they knew it was going to expire if you could if you could. Stay living a little bit longer, you wouldn't pay mm-hmm. the tax. And on the back end, it was going to be reinstated January first. If you died before January first, could you, uh, uh, could you, could you save a bunch of money? And and the the I'm blanking on the the name, but the owner of the New York Yankees was the big headline grabbing one that he died just in time to avoid the the state tax. And oh, so I didn't know that. We don't. Yeah, uh, I should remember his name. I forget. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's a great paper, and it's and it's. It, you know, it's a little harder to get these these sort of death data, but but economists are are creative at, at finding this stuff, and then they publish well. <laughs> okay, well, great. So maybe the last thing I'll ask you here, then, Brian, is can you? And to be careful, it wasn't the stuff with the inheritance was not Alshian, but we're just saying correct, the idea correct, of him yeah. going and looking at the stock prices to see can I figure out what they're making, you know, the bomb with, like, that's a very economistic thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so big picture, you know, I'm sure some listeners are like, yeah, oh, so that stuff's cute. But what would you say to somebody who's a, a young person that loves Austrian economics, they're reading man economy and state, they're going to maybe tackle human action. And when you do folks use my study guides, you know, you don't need to do it alone. Um, and they're free. 
So why uh, should they read? Are you saying they should go read Elshian? And if so, like where do they start? Do they? You said that book might be difficult. Do they start with that? Does he have? You know, maybe they're not reading AER articles if they're just you know lay people. Yeah, so yeah. can you give us some guidance there? It's a great question, and I think Austrians, especially or Austrian, whether they want to be economists or whether they're just interested in the in you know the insights of Austrian economics, I think Elshian's a great person to read. There's no basically no math. There's a few articles that have math, but the ones that we talked about today have no math. Um, I think he's a very clear writer. I, I think he's very easy to understand. He's very Austrian friendly. I mean, it's a, it's it's someone who you know Hayek is the one that's speaking speaking his praises. Buchanan speaking his praises, and you know these aren't Austrians, was kind of in the same circle. So there's a real, you know, there's if I told you to go read Robert Lucas and you hadn't studied a bunch of math, that might not be very beneficial for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Alshin, you can pick up if you have you know you're comfortable with Rothbard. I think he's in the same sort of, you know, they're they're trained. There are you know logical. Uh, Arguments that you need to be able to follow, but there's no training that's required to kind of get you up to speed. He's a subjectivist. He, he really takes that seriously. He thinks about capital seriously. He thinks about price theory, which, you know, what are prices? What, what Peter Klein calls mundane economics. He's very much about that, about, you know, what causes interest rates? What causes, you know, the price of, of oil to go up? Things like that. Spontaneous order. We talked about the evolution article. You know, if, if that's a mechanism that interests you from your from your reading of of Hayek and stuff like that, wonderful. Um, as I said, he's got Universal Economics as a textbook. It's a tough textbook, but it's a textbook that's got a PDF from Liberty Fund online. That's a good place to start. Um, the evolution article, evolution uncertain uncertainty, evolution and economic theory. There's lots of Professors have that on their website, so you don't need to pay the AER subscription to get that. Um, his collected works from from Liberty Funds has a lot of – it's got some news articles, that it, some op-eds, that sort of stuff that can get you in. Or the best way to get insights of, of Alshin is to go to pricetheory.substack.com and read Josh and I's uh, newsletter where we talk about Alshin all the time and try to translate it into into everyday language. And so – uh, I I I think it's it's one of the reasons that I got interested in Alshin is coming from learning Austrian economics. It it was very uh, it wasn't a huge leap to go to him. He's mm-hmm. not an Austrian, but he's very much a, a fellow traveler on 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 what does it mean to do economic theory and to do empirical work as well. Right? These are these the the example we said about the H bomb. This isn't about running some macroeconomics regression correlating GDP with, with, you know, fiscal policy. This is about like, you have the theory of economics, you have different theories from economics. Let's, let's look at an episode and let's see if we can recover something. It's very, it's very much a, a, you can call it's history uh, in it's, it's, it's history in that, in that formulation. But I think it tells us something cool uh, that we can learn about the world and, and think about it going forward. Okay, great. Thank you so much. So, Brian, thanks for your time, and I'm sure the listeners uh, got a lot out of this. I hope so. Thank you, Bob. And Folks, thanks for your attention, and join us next week. We'll see you then. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.